Good morning, everyone. Great to see you this morning. This is our last RBS of the school year. Oh, I know. Thanks, Steve. Um, it has been a pleasure to do this, and I think that it's going to work out well to do this character study. Moses has been the focus of this year, and then we'll go on to David next year. And as I noted, we're going to be doing the entire kingdom period next school year. So we will do Saul and Solomon that kind of go around David. But David really is that character that we will study most of the time. Today, we get that last good bit of character study for Moses. And hopefully, when we really sink ourselves into Moses this year, David next year, then when we go to the Gospel of John in two years, we'll be able to understand a lot of the messianic, prophetic Christology that John is really unpacking in his Gospel. And that's going to make a lot more sense to us because we've got those connections between both Moses and David. And so that's the plan. Um, a quick note that if you are not part of our email list, join us. If you go to stmichael.org rbs, which is Rector's Bible Study, you can listen to past lessons all summer long. Um, I had a person tell me, I think two nights ago, that they were going to go back and listen to some over the summer just to kind of refresh around what it is that we had done. And so that's available to you. And Bov will be sending out a note probably next week with at least one potential book that you could read over the summer if you'd like to prepare for David. Um, to be honest, I've been looking around and I don't really know a lot of books on David that I like that are also not super heady and dense and academic. And so I'm trying to find one. So we've ordered some and I'm going to kind of flip through them and see if we can make a recommendation for you over the summer to prepare for next year. In addition, we have, we, I, those of you who joined us for the musical a couple weeks ago, um, it was really fun. If you missed it, I just wanted you to know that we're going to have a viewing here of the video for the musical. It does not, it will not be online because we cannot share it. Copyright issues are such that we can't make it shareable, but we have a video that is archival for us and we can show it here. And so that's what we're going to do. We don't know when. The video is not done yet. And so it might be that it's later on in May. It could also be that we do it in the fall. We may do it more than once. We may do it for young families and then not or something like that. So just stay tuned. We will definitely watch it again because I haven't seen it. I would like to see it. Um, and so those of us who are in the cast have all said we just we really want to see it. So it will be fun, and so stay tuned for that. And we'll make sure that Bub sends that out to you all as well because I've had multiple requests from people here specifically about the musical. So we'll make sure you get that. Let's open with a prayer, and we'll get rolling on our last class. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. God, we give you thanks for bringing us together today, and we ask that you bless each of us, that as we finish up this study this year, you will send us out into the world this summer that we can bear witness to the love that you have shared with us through time and through your son, Jesus, that we can be your hands and feet in the world and in doing so help build your kingdom here on earth. Be with our friends who need our prayers today, particularly those who are ill and those who are near death, that your presence lift them up. Give us courage that we can do the things that might scare us, that help them feel your love. All this we ask in Jesus' name, amen. I am hearing 
what sounds like a hearing aid, and it's sort of like a... I think I still might hear it. I still hear it. It's a little psychedelic. Like, it kind of sounds like, you know, um, in Star Trek, when people, like, beam down and beam up, it kind of sounds like a little bit like someone's trying to beam into Bible study. Um, I keep watching to see if someone's going to show up. So, if, if you're near a person who's making some interesting Star Trek noises, um, then I invite you to be a friend and let them know that they're the one making noise, because oftentimes if you're wearing the hearing aid, you can't hear that your hearing aid is making noise. And so, don't be shy, let them know. Am I gonna have to come down and find out who's making noise? Yeah, it's still there. So, Bub, walk up and down the aisles a minute. See if you can help. Thank you. Okay. So, as we get this study started, hello, Cedric. What are you doing? All right. So, we had a few questions last week. It's nothing like the last study of the class to have whatever random tech things going on. Um, we had a few questions over the last week or so that I'd love to address just a little bit. So the first comes from Jody, which I thought was a really good question. Um, she said that a couple weeks ago, I mentioned that Moses didn't get into the promised land because he struck the rock for water when God had asked to speak to it. Remember that one? And she said that she had heard in the past that Moses didn't get into the promised land because he killed a man in Egypt. And so that is an interesting idea. I'd love a quick survey. Does anyone else remember being taught that Moses didn't get into the promised land because he killed the man in Egypt? One other person, thank you. So that is nothing I've ever heard. So I don't believe that's terribly common as a teaching. And so we have one other person who had been taught that. So it must be out there somewhere that perhaps I don't know if maybe a denominational group or someone had kind of landed on Moses didn't make it to the promised land because he killed the man in Egypt. He did kill the man in Egypt, but scripture never refers to that as the reason why he doesn't get into the promised land. So if that is something that you've heard or been taught in the past, that's because someone got creative and that is not what scripture actually says. Scripture really says that it is that moment when Moses goes against what God said to do that is nailed and named as the reason he does not make it into the promised land. Now, that is all well and good. That is actually what the Bible says. One of the things we're going to talk about today is why perhaps Moses didn't make it into the promised land for other good reasons. That maybe there was, I, I think two things happened. One, Moses didn't make it to the promised land. Okay, that probably is just legitimately true. And then the people had to go back and say, why didn't he? And so I do think there was a seeking out of something in the story to kind of pinpoint as that must be the reason. But the effect of Moses not getting into the promised land is actually pretty good for Israel in general. And so we're going to talk about that later on in this study. Um, then we had questions about books. 
that we're going to read in the fall. So Susie asked what book we'll start with in the fall. Right now my plan is to read First and Second Kings. So if you wanted to read ahead, and Bub will send all of this in writing so you don't have to worry about this. My intention is that we're going to read First and Second Kings. It's very possible, once I really get down to what we are doing each week, that we will hit a bit of the Chronicles as well. First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles more or less tell the same story. And so they're not exactly the same or else they wouldn't both be in there. So there might be a few moments where I want to go into Chronicles and pull something out, but primarily we're going to be reading First and Second Kings. And so if you wanted to just flip through that, read through it, it's very narrative. It's much more like Genesis than say Leviticus. So it's pretty easy to read. Um, you really won't get wrapped up around lots of legal stuff, um, especially when you get to David. David's a hot mess. Um, I mean, David is all the time doing something wrong. And the wrong stuff David does is not strike the rock instead of speak to the rock. David takes wrong to a whole new level. And so there's a lot of drama in what David does. And that's part of why I think David is fascinating. Moses killed the Egyptian, yes. But short of that, Moses is pretty solid. He's not perfect. He's, you know, he gets mad and he gets annoyed and he does some stuff like that. But he's really not the kind of person who we can point to as time and time again doing really wrong stuff. David is. And so one of the things that I want to do next year is really turn the crystal around this idea. David is a paragon of faithfulness in Judaism. How did that happen when David did so many bad things? It really is one of those situations where, I don't know if you as a parent had did this, but I was constantly saying to my kids, you did something wrong, but you are not a bad person. Um, occasionally I'm like not so sure about that, but you know, it's, <laughs> um, but that's what I always said because I thought that's what I'm supposed to say. Um, and so I think that for David, it's, it's a lot of that. There's, there's this really, really good person in there and he makes all of these bad choices. And somehow in Judaism, they have brilliantly lifted David into this place of really a model for us in our humanity and all of our broken messiness we can see faithfulness through the mess in David pretty much better than anyone else in all of scripture. And so it's, I'm very excited about next year. I think it's, I think it's a bit more interesting than this year. Um, but this year is good. We needed to know Exodus. We needed to know Moses getting to the promised land. Next year though, it's a lot of good drama that I love. I always tell teenagers when I teach them scripture that it's better than any reality TV show they've seen. So we're going to enjoy it. Okay, let's get into this lesson. We've got three parts to today's lesson. The first is we're just going to talk about the structure of Deuteronomy as a book. We've not done anything in Deuteronomy yet. This is the one day. And so we're just going to talk about what that is. Then second section, we're going to talk about Moses's last song. Moses really has a almost quite literally a swan song. And then in the third section, we talk about what it means to really die outside of the promised land. So let's start with Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is structured in two major parts. Essentially, we've got the first section of Deuteronomy, which was the bulk of it, chapters 1 through 30, are divided into three sermons of Moses. So the first part of Deuteronomy, the first 30 chapters, are three sermons of Moses. The second part of Deuteronomy, chapters 31 through 34, 
are really about Moses's goodbye. It's Moses's farewell section and his ultimate death outside the promised land. We're going to focus today on those last four chapters, but I do want to say a word about the first 30 chapters. The first 30 chapters have three sermons. The first one, which is essentially the first four chapters, recounts the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And so essentially what the writers have done is they put the entire arc of this story into a particular context. And those first four chapters remember why and that the people wandered through the wilderness for 40 years. Then when you get to the, it's the very end of chapter four, all the way through chapter 11, it's a reminder to the Israelites, to the people becoming Jewish, why following God and God's laws are so important. It's really about why, what has been happening. So remember in Sinai, they got all these laws. And then of course, over the period of time, they developed those laws and put a lot of context around them. And why doing all of that is important to be a good person, to be part of God's chosen people. And then the last biggest chunk from chapters 12 through 30 is the third sermon. And it's really the promise to Israel of God's faithfulness. And if they, the Jewish people, the Israelites, are unfaithful to God and lose the promised land, how they're able to, through repentance, be restored and reclaim the promised land. Now, I hope that you heard that last sermon and thought, why in the world would they at this time have been concerned about losing the land they have never possessed? Ah, remember, this was not written when Moses was actually alive. This was written back many, many centuries later in the exile. The people had lost the land. And so when they look back to tell their story, how critical would it be for them to emphasize that losing the land does not mean God is unfaithful. And losing the land means they can reclaim it at some point as well by doing certain things. If you look at the first section of Deuteronomy, well, it's not the first, yes, the first 30 chapters of Deuteronomy, nearly two-thirds of those chapters are the third sermon about how to repent and reclaim the land you lost. What? I mean, mathematically, that makes no sense at this point in time. If you put yourself in the shoes of the Israelites, standing there at the edge of the promised land, about to go in, and hearing Moses say, when you lose it, this is how you get it back, it would, it would make no sense because it's not for them. And it didn't happen. Did Moses talk to the people? Of course he did. And did he probably say a goodbye and a reminder of some stuff? Almost certainly. Was it this? No. And we know it wasn't this because this is talking about stuff that hasn't happened yet. And so it's good, it is instructive, it is consistent with what Moses had done. But this is one of those moments where we can, with a nice critical eye, say it is good and it is not historic. He would not have said this then, but the people needed to reflect back on contextually everything he did say to them so that they can figure out how to repent to God and to go back into the land that they lost because of their unfaithfulness. But. So the question came in, or more of a statement, but it's so concerning that those who have doubt 
So the comment is that it's concerning that people are punished because of their doubts, right? On the way, essentially, probably in the wilderness, yeah? Um, let's talk about God's punishment. You know, God's punishment is true in Scripture. I mean, there is no way you can read the Old Testament without the stories of God's punishment. For us, especially for us kind of modern Christians, um, you know, 21st century American Christians, we like, we really like grace. And we really like to think that, how do I, how do I say this? We anchor much of our identity in the truth that nothing we've done and nothing we will do will separate us from God's love. That is true. But we take that true idea and then extrapolate it in a way that is pretty unfair and it's also, I think, untrue. And that is what we do doesn't matter and has no consequence. That, that is the problem. So, yes, God loves us, and nothing we've done and nothing we do will separate us from that love. Yes, that is true. But we can't then say what we do doesn't matter. Of course it matters. It is impacting ourselves and other people and the world and our relationship with God. And we cannot say that what we do has no consequence. Even if God loves us, there can absolutely be a consequence to decisions that we make that separate us or hurt other people. It's, I mean, again, think of children. How many times do parents essentially discipline their children, not because they don't love them, but in a sense, it's kind of because they love them. If I did not love my kids, why would I care what they do or how they do it? Why would I care if they make mistakes? If I didn't love them, do whatever you want. It doesn't matter to me. But if I love them and I see them doing things and making choices that I, in my own experience, have learned will be problematic for them long-term, I do want them to stop. I want them to make different choices. Now, will they ultimately do what I want? Of course not. But can I try? Sure, I can try. And if they end up doing those things for the rest of their lives, will I stop loving them? No. I have said from the moment before I even had my first child that I know I will love my kids forever, but I will not always like them. And in a sense, I think, now I've actually liked my children up to this point, so good for them. Um, but at some point, that's not going to happen, you know, um, that's just life. And I kind of think that I, that's always made me very comfortable with God. I know God loves me, but I know I have done things that God has not liked. That is very different. And so I think the sense that our actions have consequences does not negate God's love. Now let's talk about the way that that is explicitly unpacked in the Old Testament. God, as put forward in the Old Testament, is much more vengeful and much more, I mean, I hate to say spiteful, um, it, is, it is aggressive, vengeful, violent. God is a lot rougher in the Old Testament than what we see through Jesus. We have said this many times in here, 
But we receive the fullest revelation of God's truth in the person of Jesus. We follow Jesus because it's through Jesus that we gain the best understanding we can have of God. Knowing that, we will never understand God fully. We won't understand Jesus fully, but he's as close as we can get. And so that's what we do. But in the Old Testament, we see a characterization of God that I do not believe is inconsistent on God's end. What it is, is it's inconsistent on the human understanding. We have a new revelation through Jesus of God's identity. And so that's where we begin. That is the first step in understanding God. Whenever we see anything else in the world, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, that seems to undermine or contradict God's identity that we see in Jesus, we've got to go back to Jesus. That's frustrating for a lot of people who want clear boundaries and rules. Because there's one good thing that the Old Testament gives to our human desire, and that is boundaries and rules. If you do this, you get that. If you do this, you get that, good and bad. So if you do the good thing, you get the good thing. If you do the bad thing, you get punished. It's kind of clear. And we, in our humanness, like clarity. We would much rather know that this thing will get us that result. If I knew a certain path would get me to a certain end, why wouldn't I do it? The problem is, we're never certain that, certain that decisions will get us what we want. Most of the time, we don't get what we want. In a sense, what we see in Jesus is the simplification of all of that. And we're actually going to talk about the Shema in just one second, which is important. In Jesus, we see God simple. It is grace and it is love. Everything else adds a level of complexity that we just don't really get from Jesus. Last night I was talking with a group, and I was talking about why Anglican Christianity is different than other forms of Christianity, and someone came up to me and said, as you were talking, I remember you saying in Bible study that if there are points in Scripture that seem to contradict Jesus, we have to go back to Jesus. And she said, that reminded me of Paul, because there are many points in Paul's epistles that essentially contradict Jesus. Contradict is a strong word. What I really mean is Paul tries his best to communicate the truth of Christ to all of these great people in the churches where he planted. But language itself is going to limit God. Paul, in his best attempt at guiding people in their faith in Jesus are going to, is going to put boundaries around Jesus, and he doesn't intend to. He just, that's the nature of trying to answer a question. We know, and I've said it in here before, Paul's epistles are letters from his churches asking him certain questions. Things happen in churches. People aren't sure what to do, and so they wrote to Paul, and they said, hey, this thing is happening. What should we do? Paul writes back and says, I kind of think you should do X. That is for those people at that time answering that question. Paul does not mean, I do not think Paul ever intended that those letters would be used in the 21st century to make sweeping judgments on the way we're supposed to behave with one another and what we're supposed to allow with one another. Never. That was never his intention. And when we do that, we are essentially putting Jesus in a box. We're putting God in a box. 
in Paul's box, and it is not theologically sound for us to take Paul and constrain Jesus. Make sense? Yeah. But most Reformed Christian groups have put a lot of stock in Paul. Luther, Calvin, you name it. Paul's their guy because Paul gives some order to what is essentially open-endedness in Jesus. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. I love the scene that I talk about all the time when the rich young man comes to Jesus and says, how can I attain eternal life? And he says, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And the young man says, he walks away and he has many possessions and Jesus does not go after him. That doesn't mean Jesus doesn't love him, but Jesus was pretty clear. This is what it takes. You give everything in order to have a full relationship with God. If you ever limit what you give in order to be well related to God, that's on you. That's hard. It's a very hard idea for us because we want to know how and when and who and why, and Jesus really resists that most of the time. And do not point out one half verse to me when Jesus says a thing that is very specific, because that's probably the gospel writers and not Jesus. Yes? Chris, how do you know, how do I know what is and isn't applicable to the 21st century and how do you, how do you know? So, how do you know what is and is applicable in the 21st century? Are you really asking, like, how do I do this? Like, then how do I know? How do I keep from just cherry-picking what I like and what I don't Good. Okay. How do I keep from cherry-picking the things I like or don't like? The, the real answer is each other. I mean, and that's because I'm Episcopalian. I mean, I'm an Anglican Christian, and I am fundamentally committed to the community of Christians. And so if we were to just look in this room alone, if everyone was to share their experience of God, the way that they feel loved or unloved, the pain and the success that they have had in their own life, what they hope and dream for, what they're scared about, if we were all to share that with each other, it's my faithfulness that says, we in that honest sharing, are getting the best glimpse of God we can. So it's not just about my experience. How many of us have found ourselves in the trap of, I have an opinion, I have a want, I believe God is. Anglican Christianity says from the start, it's never about us. It's never about I. It is always about the way that we share with each other, which is why Anglican Christians tend to shift the way we do stuff over time. Why we can look back and acknowledge that we've made mistakes in the past, that we have hurt people in the past, not because we have sat in a library and reflected and decided we have. No, it's because somebody in our community said, I was hurt. My grandparents were hurt. My child was hurt. And so then we say, that should not have happened, and we are sorry. And we learn from that to try not to make the same mistake again, because we'll make another mistake. We will always make mistakes. But the attempt to not make the same mistake, 
that's where our actual discipleship hits the ground. And so, Scripture is important. We should read it, we should know it, we should study it. Personal prayer is important. You should be praying on your own. But neither of those things are enough on their own. It's actually being together, knowing each other, being willing to share your own self with another person. That's when what, be, what is kind of heady becomes super tangible. That's when the spirit is present. And it's what Jesus said, when two or three are gathered, that's where I am. You don't do this on your own. You will, it will not work. And don't do it in a group that's too homogenous. That's not going to work. Because God created every person you see. And if you're not at some level attempting to know all of those people, you're not actually attempting to know God. In the past, I've emphasized a lot of multicultural, multi-faith learning in churches, not to be, I mean, you know, nowadays you would say that's attempting to be woke or something. No, that's not it. It's actually because Jesus says, love your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. You know yourself. Well, kind of. Many of us don't know ourselves. But if you know yourself better than you know your neighbor, you've not actually completed that. And so if we're seek, seeking to love everyone, not just other Christians, everyone, then actually knowing what other people believe, how they set their lives, disciplines that they observe, that is allowing us to love them. And so knowing about other religions, knowing about other countries and nationalities and cultural identities, that's us trying to love other people. Okay, that's probably good enough. I was going to say, that, that could have taken me the rest of the hour. So there is this one, <laughs> listen, this is so funny. Um, in our commentary, I actually put this on because I thought at some point it would be apropos, um, and now is the moment. Um, in the commentary, when it was talking about Moses' final speeches, um, he quoted Winston Churchill, who once said, and this is so me, I can't even tell you. Um, he says, the story goes that Winston Churchill was once asked how long it took to prepare a speech. His response was, it depends on how long the speech to be. For a two-minute speech, I need at least two days' notice. For a half-hour speech, about a half-hour's notice would be fine. For a two-hour speech, I am ready now. <laughs> and I thought, oh my gosh, that is so me. <laughs> I, remember, I remember being asked to be a guest preacher at a church where it was normal for them to preach 40, 45 minutes. Um, and they looked at me and they said, you know, our sermons are a lot longer than yours. It's like 40, 45 minutes. I said, oh, that's easy. I mean, it is so much easier to talk for 40 minutes than it is to talk for 10 minutes. Because to actually say something that is comprehensible and useful in 10 minutes, that's what takes preparation. And so I saw that quote from Churchill after having just, what, lost myself for 10 minutes in the answer of your question. Um, he's so right. He's so right. Um, Okay, that was a very good question. So if turn very quickly to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. This is the only part we're going to look at before the very end. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5 is called the Shema. If you have any real familiarity with Judaism, you will know there is a statement of faith that they all learn from the very beginning 
it's as if Christians, you know, when you say to Christians, what really is the point of Christianity? Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. It's one of those things. The Shema is for Judaism, that thing that everyone can just come right up with. And it comes right here from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and 5. Let's read it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. That, that is the Shema. And that is what every child should be able to repeat right off the top of their head. In fact, I had a, um, a friend send a video of their kid who goes to temple um, preschool and they asked him to pray over dinner and he starts singing the Shema because that's what they do um, at temple. It's great because this is, um, I'm going to try and sing this. I didn't actually know this melody until this morning, but I know, I've, I've heard it so many times um, and I thought, well, I want you all to hear this because this is actually what a Jewish person who is brought up in the church should know. And it's essentially the first um, verse four. It goes, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. That is that first verse. So it's Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. That is verse four. And that is, here of Israel, the Lord our God is the Lord alone. And so that is just something to put in your pocket. If you have a friend who is Jewish, or if you ever are asked kind of what really is the essence of Judaism, that's it. These two verses is it. And that's what everybody learns over and over again. Interestingly, in, Ma in Mark chapter 12, one of the scribes comes up to Jesus and says, which commandment is first of them all? And then Jesus says, now look at Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Jesus says, the first is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. So when Jesus is asked by the leaders, what is the first commandment of all? He starts with the Shema. That is what he repeats. And then he says, the second is, you shall love your, your neighbor as yourself. And that we know is from Leviticus. So in that moment, and then, then if you look at Mark 12, and then this is in other gospels as well, what happens is the scribes basically say, yep, that's it. They cannot deny that essentially in those two lines, Jesus has distilled all of Judaism down. And he takes one from Deuteronomy and one from Leviticus. This is not new stuff. But what Jesus does is he makes it super simple. He strips everything else away. And he says, you love God with all your heart and soul and mind. And you love your neighbor as yourself. And they're both plucked right out of the Torah. And the scribes can't argue with it. Yes, they can fill it out. And they can give you books and books and books about what it means. But there's nothing else that needs to be said. That's it. We often think, and it's completely innocent to think this, Jesus started something new. Jesus wasn't starting something new. Jesus was coming down to say, I told you this, so stop doing all the other stuff. I've already said this to you. Really, really do it. Like, don't 
put a bunch of, I had a professor once say that we developed theology to make what God wants us to do so complex that we can't do it. <laughs> That's not it. This is it. And we know here that the Shema comes right from Deuteronomy. Okay. Anything else about those first 30 chapters? Those are good questions. All right, so flip on back to chapter 31. We're jumping way to the end. This is Moses' last song. So just to make sure we're all clear, what has happened here is that the Israelites have come out of Egypt. They went to Sinai. They got all the laws. They built the tabernacle and the tent. They went to the edge of the promised land. They sent some spies in. They said, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, there are giants everywhere. And so then they came back and they said, no, we're not going in. God said, well, then you've got to all die. So it sends them back out in the wilderness for 40 years. Joshua and Caleb are the two of that generation that will survive and go into the promised land. Moses does not. And so we have come to the point where 40 years of wandering, they are now back at the edge of the promised land. And there at the edge of the promised land, they know this time they're going in. But they essentially have this send-off of Moses. So this is the end of Moses' life. Moses has done remarkable things. And so he gets a nice, proper send-off. It begins here in chapter 31. Let's just start from the beginning. When Moses had finished speaking all these words to all Israel, which is referencing his three sermons, he said to them, I am now 120 years old. I am no longer able to get about, and the Lord has told me you shall not cross over this Jordan. The Lord your God himself will cross over before you. He will destroy these nations before you, and you shall dispossess them. Joshua also will cross over before you as the Lord promised. Jump to verse 7. Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and bold, for you are the one who will go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their ancestors to give them, and you will put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. We'll pause there. Moses is essentially passing the torch. This is a mantle moment. Joshua has been with him from the start. Remember, Joshua was like way back in Egypt. Joshua was there. And so Joshua came with him. They went through the Red Sea. He's on the mountain. Remember, depending on the way that that story is told, Joshua went up with Moses halfway and then waited for him on his own while Moses was at the top of the mountain. Joshua has seen all this stuff. Joshua is not just some guy. Joshua has been groomed to be their new leader. And so Moses, in this nice ceremonial moment, is passing the torch to Joshua. Now then, Moses will say goodbye to the people, and then he will essentially walk off to die. And so let's look at Moses' final song. Look at chapter 32. We'll look at the first nine verses. It's long. Chapter 32, we'll do the first nine verses. Moses is speaking, and he says, Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. Let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop like the rain, my speech condensed like the dew, like gentle rain on grass, like showers on new growth. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to the Lord. The rock, 
His work is perfect, and all his ways are just. A faithful God without deceit, just and upright is he. Yet his degenerate children have dealt falsely with him, a perverse and crooked generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, O foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years long past. Ask your father and he will inform you, your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High apportioned the nations, when he divided humankind, he fixed the boundaries of the peoples according to the numbers of the gods. The Lord's own portion was his people, Jacob, his allotted share. We'll stop there. This final song really deals with the idea of chosenness, and we've talked about this a number of times. The Israelites were chosen by God, the way the story is told. Israelites were chosen by God, but it was never meant because they were better than the other people. It was simply a responsibility. God chose the Israelites in order to bring the full blessing of God into the entire world. But that then got lost over time. Israelites, the Jewish people, began to understand themselves as better than and they began to separate themselves and hold themselves in higher esteem because they were chosen. They misunderstood what the chosenness meant. Then they lost their land. Their kingdom fell. They went into exile. And now those people are writing these words. And you see what they're doing? They are correcting the idea of chosenness. They are really getting at the sense that chosenness is responsibility, not being better than. And I find this very interesting. Look at verse 8. When the Most High apportioned the nations, when he divided humankind, he fixed the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the gods. Isn't that interesting? Remember the whole story. We didn't really do all of this. We didn't really talk about Babel and all of that when we did Genesis very long. But do remember that in the grand story. So this these people know what was written in Genesis. They're writing all of those five books. And so they're telling one big story. And they began with, there was nothing in the void and God breathed over the void and then created all of the world and the galaxies and the stars and the water and the plants and the animals and the people. And then the people multiplied, right? They ate the fruit. They got sent out of Eden. They married with the other people who came from who knows where. And then they multiplied all over the world. And then we get the Tower of Babel. And remember, Tower of Babel was the supreme height of human existence. It was incredible. The people were wealthy, they were well-fed, they were healthy, they were able to communicate with each other, there was peace. But they became very full of themselves. And so as the story goes, God divided them so that they could no longer speak to one another. They spoke different languages, they lived in different places, they began to fight because they misunderstood one another. And here, we are hearkening all the way back to that kind of disbursement. And what the writers are saying here is that God still loved them. God cared for them, the non-Israelites. And God gave them space, gave them autonomy, gave them care through the other gods. What is that? There is, as we've noted, the very clear understanding here that all the other gods are real. They're just not as strong as Yahweh. 
And so what is happening here is we are seeing the manifestation of that kind of identity where the Babylonians and the Persians and the Egyptians and the you name it, all these other groups, they had gods, real gods. But those gods were all subservient to Yahweh. Yahweh was the chief god. And Yahweh worked with, essentially, these other gods. I mean, they were related in some way. Yahweh was simply chief. And so all these other people are part of the grand human story. This is one of those moments where, when we note in the words, there was an understanding that everybody else was part of God's work, not just the Israelites. This is that redefining of chosenness. God chose the Israelites. Yahweh, the chief God, the Most High, chose the Israelites in order to help bring blessing back upon the entirety of humanity. But God never left those other humans alone. God simply had other gods watching out for them. Isn't that interesting? Now, if you were to read commentaries in Jewish tradition, you would not hear what I just said, because that's messy. But I think that we understand, and we will see, if you read, you know, I hadn't thought this above, but let's make a note that over the summer, it would probably be decent for you to read through Joshua and, and the Judges, because that's the period of time between Moses bringing them to the edge of the promised land and the kingdom period. And so it would be really helpful, and I'll identify a bit. That's a lot to read, and it's not bad to read. You're talking about stories like Samson and Deborah. I mean, these are great stories. Um, it would be nice, though, to get the context of what happens in particularly Joshua, but also in the Judges period. There's a lot of the my God's better than your God talk, and this reinforces that understanding of what's going on in the world, that just like you see in many other mythological traditions, the gods have a reality and a relationship among themselves that is reflected on the earth. And in a grand scale, what this implies is there's a pantheon of gods. Could they be angels? I don't know. I mean, could we understand the heavenly host as something that is a multiplicity with God at the chief place, whatever. Um, the answer is, we don't know, so just let it go. But it's the way people understood the world. We now are not quite understanding the world that way. Although I do think when you hear a lot of people talk about different civilizations, much of the undercurrent of what they talk about that is more political is absolutely this kind of religiosity and understanding that there's a cosmic battle, not just a worldly battle. You kept using um, the word God, main God, and other gods. And I wonder, and I bet you know the answer to this, um, I wonder if it's just a magic translation problem. Did they always use the same word God as you did ah. God and God? So question is, is there a difference in the word God in the original language? Is that kind of what you're wondering? Yes. So, yes, there is. Depending on the way that God is used, when we talk about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that God's name is defined as Yahweh. That is the particular Hebrew name. 
When we talk about other gods, like little g gods, we're talking about the word ale. Yeah. Yeah. So English just has some limitations. So so I'm sorry, the question really is why in English do we not reflect the differences between the words for God in these other languages. And it's just English is limited. We just don't have other words. Um, it's sort of like when we talk about love in the New Testament, there are four words for love in Greek, and there's one word for love in English, love. And if we don't understand the different words for love in Greek, we can begin to conflate all the ways in which love is talked about in the New Testament when it's not that way. And so I think it's, it is English limitations. English has, I read somewhere that if you were to put all English terms for engineering in a list, that the list of terms for engineering in German would be six times longer. And I think that is one of the reasons why Germans tend to be better engineers. I mean, they're some of the best engineers in the world. Well, if you had six times as many words to be six times as specific and precise in what it is that you were doing, you probably would be better. And so I think in Greek, we see a more precise understanding of love than we see in English. And in English has their own versions of precision. It just happens not to be these. And so in the Bible, we get a lot of the same English word to define four, five, six, seven different kinds of Hebrew words or Greek words. And that's why oftentimes what I will do prior to this is I will blow out what that Hebrew word is to see what else. So when you hear me say things like, it's that word, but it could also mean these things, I'm not making that up because I like it to mean other things. I am actually, I've gone into the original language to say that word could be interpreted in these three or four different ways. Well, those different interpretations mean a lot. And we should understand that we might hear a particular English word in scripture, but we cannot put all stock in that particular word. We have to go back into the original language. If we want to get super specific, if we're going to talk about love, it's just like, Love, great, use love. But if we're gonna talk about specific ways to relate to other people, it's probably worth knowing which Greek word was actually used for that love before we put boundaries around it that are ill-informed. Yes? Um, Matthew's Bible, my version, uses sons instead of God. Oh. So it's trying to get around the problem. Yes. What version are you reading? NIV. NIV. Okay, good. So, rather than using gods, NIV uses sons. It's not improper to use sons if we are thinking, if we're thinking of a pantheon of heavenly host and we're seeing Yahweh as the chief, it, it's not improper to understand these other 
heavenly beings as sons or daughters of Yahweh. That's not wrong. And of course, we see this, I mean, God, pick an old civilization, a mythological tradition from an old civilization. This is what we have, right? Whether it's Zeus or it's Jupiter or it's, um, what, name someone else. Uh, What was Osiris or Ra or you name it. Odin and Norse mythology, I mean, whatever. There's always kind of a father figure, so to speak, and often a mother figure. And then the other gods kind of relate to them in some way. I think part of what we're going to get to in this third section is the attempt to not make Moses a demigod. And so read this however you want. This is just an interesting note that essentially reinforces something I've told you in the past without giving you a lot of evidence. So here's a bit more of the evidence to understand the way that they would understand the world. It's not the way that we understand the world or that we attempt to understand the world, but it is a way that they did. And so it's important for us to understand their point of view so that we can understand how it applies to us now. I was once told, and I I say this to my own kids, that until you can actually make the argument of a person you disagree with, you don't have the right to disagree with them. And so this is one of those moments where, intellectually speaking, until we can actually understand the Israelites, who they were, where they were coming from, how they saw the world as best we can, we can't really apply what they believed to ourselves today. And this is just an attempt at doing that well. Okay, let's jump to the final moments. Chapter 34. Chapter 34 is preceded by a long blessing moment, which you can read on your own. The blessing that Moses offers the people very much mirrors the blessing Jacob offered the people before he died. And so, which is meant to be explicit, Jews would really know that. They would see that blessing as being similar to Jacob's blessing. And so there's a lot of consistency going back before the Exodus itself. But then we get to this final chapter. It's the final chapter of the entire Torah, is Deuteronomy 34. And it is radically important to the identity of the Jewish people going forward. Let's just read the first bit of verses. Actually, I'm going to read the whole thing. Chapter 34. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him the whole land, Gilead, as far as Dan, all of Naphtali, and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah, as far as the western sea, the Negeb and the plain that is the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zoar. The Lord said to him, This is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not cross over there. Then Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab at the Lord's command. He was buried in a valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor, but no one knows his burial place to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His sight was unimpaired, his vigor had not been abated. The Israelites wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the period of mourning for Moses was ended. Joshua, son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hand on him, and the Israelites obeyed him, doing as the Lord had commanded Moses. Never since 
Has there arisen a prophet in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face? He was unequaled for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to perform in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh and all his servants and his entire land, and for all the mighty deeds and all the terrifying displays of power that Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. So we can say so much about what's happening in this final chapter. There's a ton that we can unpack and we could turn around and around and around. Essentially, it is critical to understand that Moses has brought the people to this point, but Moses does not bring them to the end. And I think that is part of the design of this story. Moses could be misunderstood as being essentially a demigod. Moses could easily be understood as being equal to God. And yet here, God has limited Moses. Moses has died before going into the promised land. Moses is a great prophet. That's enough. And it's very important that this happened because otherwise he could have been deified. And so the Jewish people really understood the limits of Moses. Really, really great human. A prophet of God. Someone who got them going in the right direction, but still human. And this ending ties that off very nice and cleanly. It is also important that we understand the way that this story will ultimately be used to tell the story of Jesus. Now, I hope you, under, you noticed when it said, never since has there arisen a prophet in Israel like Moses whom the Lord knew face to face. That's a big statement. And this is written with much of the knowledge of the rest of the Old Testament. Not every single thing, but much of what the Old Testament tells, the story the Old Testament tells, happened before this was written. And so you think about all of the, the conquering of the promised land, the judges period, the kingdom period, with the exception of really the rebuilding of the temple, everything had already happened when this was written. And so David has come and gone. These great leaders have come and gone, and never since has there arisen a prophet like Moses. So then, when Jesus' story is told, what is Matthew in particular? What is Matthew, but Luke's as well, goal in telling the story of Jesus? To make crystal clear this is the new Moses. And so when Jesus has an immaculate conception, when Jesus is threatened to be killed by the king as a baby, when he is spirited away and saved from that killing, when he knows knowledge, he is not being described as just a precocious kid. He's being teed up to be a prophet as great as Moses. That's their intent when they tell that story. That's why knowing the story of Moses is very important for us in order to understand the story of Jesus. It may not be necessary to be a Christ follower, but if we're trying to go deeper in our own understanding, knowing who Moses was and knowing who David was helps us know how people understood Jesus. Because essentially, Jesus becomes both 
the new Moses and the new David. You thought they were good on their own. Try them together. That's what the gospel writers are saying about Jesus. And then early Christians begin to refine and refine their understanding. But initially, when the Jewish people are telling the story of that Jewish rabbi who died on the cross, they're telling that story very clearly through the lens of both Moses and David. And now we've got Moses, so next year, let's get David. Thank you all very much. I hope you have a great summer. Bye. What is that?